0: Greetings, salutations, and welcome to the China Guy podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lavellet, and I would like to thank you for listening and for being interested in the spectacle of Chinese history. Before we plunge into the dramas and complexities of this ancient land, I'll take a moment to introduce myself and my goals for this podcast. I hold a bachelor's degree in history and international studies from the University of Evansville, located in beautiful southern Indiana. Evansville, all hail to thee i studied Mandarin for six years, and in 2013, I spent four months studying at East China Normal University in Shanghai. In January, my wife and I will move to the city of Shenyang in northeastern China, where we will be teaching English to Chinese children, gorging on piles of dumplings, and freezing our butts off in the Manchurian winters. I am trained in the study of history, but that doesn't mean you have to be an expert or a history buff to enjoy this podcast. The following episodes will present an introductory and dynamic look into Chinese history and culture. As someone who grew up hearing the traditional Western historical narrative, I know all too well the brand of history marketed to us in the United States. Medieval history, the Renaissance, the American Revolution, and Civil War, World Wars I and II, with an emphasis on the sequel, and perhaps some Roman history if you're lucky. Unfortunately, much of what is known about non-Western history slips by unnoticed and unstudied. There is a yawning gap in our knowledge of history, and this podcast is just one of the ways I hope to bridge that gap. I envision myself as a journeyman historian hoping to enlighten and connect with those who will listen. So if you're still listening, thanks, and let's get started. Chinese civilization stretches back thousands of years. China has given us numerous advances in science, including paper, gunpowder, and the compass. Chinese culture contains prolific treasure troves of literature, poetry, and philosophy. The United States, as a nation, began in 1776. For the Chinese, that's recent history. Their past is ripe with fascinating tales and sweeping epics. A farm boy from the Styx founded a great dynasty. Sailors set off into unknown waters in the service of their emperor. And an obscure concubine rose to become China's first female emperor. The history of China is lush, impactful, and deserves to be told. That's why I, the China Guy have decided to add to this collective historical understanding. I will take the scholarly textbook histories of China and digest them into something interesting and meaningful for you, the listener. Like all history, Chinese history isn't just for those who made it. It is the history of humanity, just as deeply as American and medieval histories are the history of all peoples. To understand where we are and how we got here, we must broaden our scope and include the history of China in our historical worldview. From Mao to now. The Historical Roots of the Chinese Economic Miracle, Part 1. While brainstorming ideas for this first episode, I kept asking myself what would make the most interesting jumping-off point. I finally settled on one thought that just kept popping up in my head. How did Maoist China, encumbered by tragedies such as the Cultural Revolution, transform into the developing economy of modern China in the span of just a few decades? This topic has become more poignant in recent weeks, with the Chinese stock market and their slowing economy. Questions have been raised about the sustainability of China's growth and the authenticity of reported growth rates. Yet, China has undoubtedly experienced the most rapid industrialization in human history. How did this happen? Let's find out. Our story begins in the early 1970s, when China emerges from the horrors of the Cultural Revolution and begins to turn outward. In 1971, the famous American diplomat and policymaker Henry Kissinger met with Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai, heralding the start of so-called ping-pong diplomacy. This was followed in February of 1973 by the first diplomatic visit to Beijing by a U.S. president. Richard Nixon stepped out of Air Force One and drove through empty Beijing streets to meet with Mao. Chinese citizens were barred from getting anywhere near the U.S. diplomatic mission for fear of a reactionary group. Remember that phrase. It will come up any time you study the Chinese Communist Party, also known as the CCP. As the Cultural Revolution ran out of steam in early 1970s, Chinese society began to shift. Schools began to reopen across the country, and university exams were finally held again in 1973, signaling the start of a new normal in China. Gone were the days of radical revolution and violence. This reopening of the Chinese mainland, coincided with a dramatic increase in CCP membership. From 1973 to 1974, 14 million Chinese became members of the CCP. Many of these new members were were ideological pariahs who had been outcast in the chaotic Cultural Revolution, and many were also newcomers recruited by elite politicians, vying for power as they anticipated the coming death of Mao. This influx of new and returning members created new factions, expanding the ideological base of the party and changing its course. One of those returning elites was Deng Xiaoping. Notorious in the party for his alternative economic plans for China's future, Deng hoped to utilize foreign technology, investment, and knowledge while maintaining Chinese power and integrity. This was seen by many as anti-party and smacked of collusion with capitalists. Thus, he was disgraced and booted from the party in 1966, only to return in the freer 1970s as vice premier. In 1974, Deng delivered a speech to the UN about Chinese development and stated that self-reliance in no way means self-seclusion and rejection of foreign aid. These factors, combining in the early 1970s, set up China and the CCP for a period of expansive change in the second half of the decade. Two main themes run through these years. On one hand, we have a slow decline and an eventual death of the first generation of the Communist Party. Many stalwarts of the CCP will die or retire into obscurity. Longtime premier Zhou Enlai is diagnosed with cancer in 1974, and his health declines dramatically. Zhu De, the puppet master behind the construction of the Red Army, retires in that same year. Even the great Mao himself will fall victim to time's inevitable march. Thus, the struggle for party leadership begins in earnest. Alongside this gradual changing of the guard, New factions develop and a new campaign of persecution emerges, aimed at Deng Xiaoping. As vice-premier, Deng began to reform many of the policies of the Cultural Revolution, bringing him into conflict with an aging and infirm Mao, who begins to swing power away from Deng into the arms of the radical wing of the CCP. Mao instituted a campaign to counter the rightist wind to reverse correct verdicts, or in other words, the verdicts of Mao. As this campaign against Deng began to heat up, Mao needed to find a suitable replacement at the top of the party food chain. While he sought the successor from the revolutionary wing of the party, he was not quite ready to give everything over to the radicals. Perhaps he remembered the worst excesses of the Cultural Revolution a decade earlier. A search was launched for a radical yet pliable leader to serve as the heir to the great chairman, someone who wouldn't cause too much ruckus. Eventually, a young party member named Hua Guofeng was plucked from obscurity by Mao and placed in the driver's seat as party vice chair. Yet, as we will see, Hua does not act as the pliant pushover that many in the party hoped. As we enter the middle of the 1970s, a number of factors have begun to coalesce. Deng Xiaoping, once the great reformer who would lead China into a new economy, is a waning star, as a smear campaign blemishes his once-prominent name. Meanwhile, newcomer Hua Guofeng has ascended with Mao's blessing, representing the closest thing he has to an heir. 1975 and 1976 were uncertain years in Chinese politics, as Deng and Hua each attempted to assert themselves as the future of the party. That future arrived more quickly than expected. On January 8, 1976, Zhou Enlai died. This triggered a nationwide reaction as millions of Chinese mourned the man who had led the Chinese government as premier for over 20 years. Interestingly, Mao declined to visit Zhou on his deathbed nor did he attend his funeral. His death represented a massive blow to Deng Xiaoping as Zhou Enlai was a proponent as the late Zhou Enlai was a proponent of Deng's market reforms. In his passing, Deng had lost perhaps his greatest advocate at the top of Chinese politics. Deng himself delivered the eulogy to his old comrade Joe Lai, and as you might suspect, politics made it into the speech. In a particular passage, Deng praised Joe for being open and above board, and for his warm-heartedness. While this may seem like harmless appreciation of a dead man, it can also be viewed as a subtly calculated dig at Mao Zedong and the leaders of the Cultural Revolution, none of whom could be described as open or warm-hearted. Unsurprisingly, the campaign against Deng intensified in the wake of his controversial eulogy. Whether this occurred naturally or was spurred on by Mao in direct response to the eulogy is unclear, yet it made the political life of Deng Xiaoping quite difficult. Posters and essays spread across China denouncing revisionists and capitalist rotors. These would-be villains were supposedly trying to reinstitute the intellectual elitism that marked Chinese history for centuries. Sensing that Beijing was becoming less safe for him, Deng fled the capital, heading to the south in Guangzhou, where he was protected by his ally, General Xu Shiyou. While Deng flees home, Hua Guofeng flies high. After the death of Zhou Enlai, Hua replaced him as premier. Yet there was more to come for the newly christened figurehead. On September 9, 1976, China's fearless leader Mao Zedong died 10 minutes after midnight. His funeral was attended by one million Chinese in Tiananmen Square, where Hua delivered the eulogy, praising Mao for his suppression of the right and left opportunist lines in the party. This was particularly targeted against his old rival Deng, who was by then long gone in his self-imposed exile in Guangzhou. Apart from Hua, other players made an appearance at the funeral of Mao. Their names were Wang Hongwen, Zhuang Xiao, Yao Wenyuan, and lastly, Mao's wife, Jiang Qing. While many of these names are individually unfamiliar, they have been collectively called the Gang of Four, who became infamous after the death of Mao for driving the most radical parts of the Cultural Revolution and plotting against Mao and the party. Less than one month after the funeral, on October 7th, Hua Guofeng was named as the new chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. He now held two of the three paramount positions in Chinese politics both chairman of the party and premier of the government. Only the top military position was not fully in his control. Yet even this combination gave him enough power to be considered the de facto leader of the new post-Mao China. On October 9, 1976, one month after Mao's funeral, the Gang of Four were arrested without warning on the orders of the newly crowned Chairman Hua. This marked the beginning of the Gang of Four trials the first great test of the new Chinese government and its place in the modern world. Next time on The China Guy. Hua Guofeng ascended as the paramount leader of China. How long does he hold power? What is he willing to do to keep that power? Who were this mysterious gang of four, and what was their fate? Were they truly the enemies of all China, or just convenient scapegoats? What happened to old Deng Xiaoping, the man in exile? How does he get back into the game? All this and more on our next exciting installment of The China Guy. Thanks for listening. Zaijian.